Hey everybody, welcome to the sixth episode of Let's Talk About Sweat. Today we had a great conversation with Dr. Vikash Patel about his experience treating patients with excessive sweat, what their stories have been, what their journeys have been. I think there were a lot of things in there that surprised me, so uh, give it a listen. I think you guys will enjoy learning. But first, this week's embarrassing sweat story this one's gonna be by David. What's your story, David? Yeah, 11 years old. Uh, dad took me golfing. I don't like golf. Didn't like it. Still don't like it. Never will like it. It's not <laughs> my sport. Me. However, uh, we were in the fairway. Had a seven iron. We were a solid 130 yards out from the green, and about a you know 90 to 100 yards out from a, a pretty big pond. Um, and I uh, hit the best shot of probably my life and my dad was so excited because the ball landed like right next to the hole and I was just over there on my knees crying (laughs) because what he hadn't heard was the plop of the seven iron just dropping in the lake a hundred years away I mean I I, the the thing just (laughs) it was insane how far that club flew um i just couldn't hang on to it my hands were too sweaty i couldn't hold a grip and i lost a really nice seven iron that day i don't really care because i hate golf but it was still quite demoralizing so that's like taking follow through i mean that that's the secret yes. to a shot right like follow through <laughs> let go of the club <laughs> let it let the sweat not sure how release it from your hands works, but- Wow. All right. Well, if you have an incredible story of childhood embarrassment like that or present day embarrassment, if you've heard some of our previous stories uh, on the other Let's Talk About Sweat episodes, please send it to my story at mycarpe.com. We'd love to feature you on an episode. And with that, let's talk about sweat. Let's do it. Hey everybody, I'm Casper. And I'm David. And we were two sweaty guys who started Carpe. We met in college, we connected over our sweaty hands, and we've spent the past few years thinking about sweat, researching sweat, and working on sweat solutions. So join us each week and let's talk about sweat. Welcome back to Let's Talk About Sweat. Today we are joined by Dr. Vikash Patel. Uh, He's a board certified dermatologist here in North Carolina. He's the founder of North Carolina Dermatology Associates where he currently practices. And uh, he went to Duke Med School. Uh, I went to Duke undergrad, and, and partly because of that connection, he was one of Carpe's first medical advisors. So, Dr. Patel, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to be here, David and Casper. Uh, just a crazy time with uh, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic here. So, uh, all learning new ways of being able to kind of practice medicine and taking care yep. of our patients. Yeah. So Dr. Patel would love to, uh, and and I think the listeners would love to hear a little bit more about your background, how you ended up kind of where you are today. So uh, I went to Duke, both undergrad and and medical school, Um, did my residency training at Duke as well, and then moved to Washington, D.C. and uh, practiced in the Washington, D.C. area for about five and a half years uh, between two different practices. Um, in 2009, uh, started North Carolina Dermatology Associates here in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is home. And so we've been open uh, about 11 years and seeing medical, surgical, and cosmetic dermatology patients. Uh, we have two uh, providers um, in addition to myself that um, have come on board over the last several years uh, as well. That's great. And how, what really drew you to dermatology? I like dermatology because of the variety that it offered. Um, I was one of those medical students that really enjoyed pretty much every single rotation I went through, internal medicine, surgery, pediatrics, um, everything. And 
dermatology was something I fell into my third year of medical school because I realized it was a combination of all of those things because in a span of a day as a dermatologist, I can be a pediatrician, I can be an internist, I can be an oncologist, I can be a surgeon, I can be a pathologist. And so that variety that it provided was something that really allowed me to take advantage of all the interests that I had going through those rotations early on in my medical school career. That's awesome. So um, you already kind of briefly brought up that right now it's a crazy time. Um, today is April 30th, and we're still uh, under stay-at-home order at a, at a national level for the most part. Georgia's like, you know, easing up in a couple areas. But um, for the most part, businesses, people are staying at home, and your practice is all remote right now, if I understand correctly. So how have y'all adapted to that, and, and what's really changed um, from kind of the patient perspective, and how are you seeing patients? What are those conversations like? How, how have you had to adapt and how's it going? So this is our seventh week of being at home with the practice. And so we've done um, a couple things. So we have three physicians who work for us. And so what we decided was each physician would be responsible for seeing any urgent matters in the office. And so we've been assigned, we each have been assigned a week. If there is any high-risk skin cancers, any urgent rashes um, that needs to be seen in the office, any biopsies that need to be taken. Uh, we will evaluate them using telemedicine. And then um, if the physician has decided that the person needs to come in, they will come in and that physician for the week uh, will go ahead and uh, address whatever issue needs to be addressed. Um, the rest of the time, all three of us have converted over to telemedicine, which is something that none of us had done. Um, Dermatology is probably really well placed to do medicine via tele, uh, telehealth, um, partly due to the fact that dermatology is a very visual feel. And with it being visual, um, our entire physical exam can be done by just looking at it. There is no um, listening to the heart or the lungs with the best stethoscope or looking back in the back of the mouth or into the nose or into the ears that some of our other colleagues have to do. So. Um, we have a big advantage for that. And so, you know, we're, we've been pushing all of our patients to telemedicine initially. I'll tell you, I've been surprised by something. I've been surprised at the number of new patients I've seen. And probably 30 to 40% of our patients are patients that we've never seen in our practice that um, still need to be seen. And I didn't think that um, we would have that many new patients. Um, I thought we would spend most of our time seeing our existing patients and just taking care of existing issues, but we are seeing lots of new issues. Um, the majority, acne. Acne is super easy. Um, and so we've been seeing a lot of patients for acne. And um, we've been seeing some rashes and some spot checks. Um, that's the majority of stuff that we've been seeing. So among those 30 to 40% of patients that are new to the practice, are the majority of those acne cases? Um, no, the new patients tend to be spot checks or new rashes. I, I take it you haven't been seeing many sweaty cases uh, during the remote times. Not, not many hyperhidrosis patients coming in. I have, we did have one, um, and it wasn't a patient, it was just a conversation, but it's a current patient who um, we are using Botox to treat and had a question on how do we do that. And unfortunately, we're just going to have to wait till the practice opens up again. How mm -hmm. do they feel about that? 
Um, I think I think everyone understands the limitations of where we are and, and the importance of the stay-at-home order and the importance of trying to flat, flattening the curve. Um, so what we try to do is we try to maximize their treatment plan just based on other tools that we have from, through prescription products and over-the-counter products. Well, Dr. Patel, uh, you know, we're hoping this podcast transcends uh, the time we're in right now. So what we wanted to chat about today is, you know, a bit of the experience, a bit of the history you've had with patients who come in with hyperhidrosis, who come in with excessive sweating, um, and generally what that's been like, you know, what kind of treatments you've tried, what you've personally found uh, their journeys to be like. That's a great question. Um, I like the word journey because um, I've been practicing for probably about 15, 16 years and things have changed. New products have come on board. And as those new products come on board, um, you have to change the way you approach them. And I think um, a great way of kind of looking at how we approach patients is to kind of go back early in my career where we didn't have a lot of opportunities and a lot of products out there. And so, you know, when I see patients, the first thing that we want to do is determine whether or not an individual has primary hyperhidrosis or secondary hyperhidrosis. Um, the difference between the two is secondary hyperhidrosis implies that there is a underlying medical condition that leads to the individual having hyperhidrosis. Um, and those are treated differently because you need to treat the underlying medical issue, which we hope will hopefully take care of that. I think primary hyperhidrosis, which is where we really should kind of focus the um, conversation on. And in the past, we had very little. Uh, we had aluminum chloride or Drysol, both over-the-counter as well as prescription strength. And those are usually the first-line treatments that, that, that we were trained to use. And so, you know, we tried a lot of that, and I prescribed a lot of that. And early in my career, when I didn't have much experience with it, that's pretty much all that, that, that we had access to and what we used. Um, the second line of treatment that we used after that was using um, some of the iontophoresis devices that are out there, which is um, a water bath, uh, if you're using palms and soles, and they have uh, adapters to use for the axilla or the underarm areas where you plug in and, and it creates these water ions. And the thought is that these water ions kind of uh, stunt the sweat glands. And when they stunt the sweat glands, you, you see reduced um, sweating. And so that's where we were for a, for a long period of time. There were some off-label use of um, medications such as glycopylorate um, um, orally that's still used uh, to this day. And so those were some other options that were available, but it wasn't really much of a conversation. It wasn't something that we really pushed much for um, because there wasn't many options out there. I think the big thing that really changed the, um, the understanding of hyperhidrosis, or at least the um, people started talking about it, was when Botox was introduced. Because when Botox was introduced, it was introduced, uh, well, Botox was around. It was being used in ophthalmology, and then it became something that we started using within dermatology from a cosmetic standpoint because they found that it relaxed facial muscles uh, to help improve fine lines and wrinkles for individuals. But with that came also the understanding and due to the mechanism of way Botox works on those muscles, it's the same uh, nerve muscle pathway that sweat glands use. And um, it became 
um, off-label use of injecting Botox in, in small amounts into the underarm areas to shut down sweating. And so that was the next big step that occurred. And once the FDA approval came of that, that's when um, the makers of Botox were able to advertise it. And so there was much more um, press about it and, and advertising about it, and it became a little bit easier for our patients to talk about. What's the first patient you remember uh, actually, you know, going through their hyperhidrosis journey with you? Do you have one in mind? Yeah, so I, I, I think about this one patient um, when I was practicing in Washington, D.C. She was a young college um, student. Um, and so, interestingly, she lived in the D.C. area but went to school in, in North Carolina in the Triangle where all of us are. Um, and she came in to see me and she had been on both uh, the topicals, the aluminum chloride, and I believe she had also been on iantaphoresis and um, still wasn't having a good result. And at that point, Botox for hyperhidrosis had already been approved. And so we transitioned her into um, injecting Botox and she was extremely happy with that. Um, and I remember seeing her early in her college career. Um, and early in my career in Washington, D.C. And then for a couple of years, I did not see her. And she came in to see me for another reason. But hyperhidrosis was no longer an issue because she actually went and had the elective sympathectomy, which is the surgical approach that um, some patients who have such severe disease kind of go through. It's not a common treatment, but it is a treatment that's available that some cardiothoracic surgeons can do. There are some risks that are involved with that. It is things that we recommend that our patients definitely talk to their physicians about before kind of going down that pathway. So where was she sweating? She was sweating in the underarms. Okay, do you, do you know offhand which, uh, which ganglion that was this, for the surgery? Like the T3, T4 level? Uh, I'd have to look that up and get back to you, but no, off the top of my head, unfortunately, I can't remember the last time I looked at those uh, those things. Uh, luckily, I'm not a cardiothoracic surgeon. <laughs> That's uh, it, it's something that we might want to have an episode about at some point, just because I've been reading a lot about it, and the the rate of complications apparently varies massively between like where the surgery is performed. You so. should definitely find a, uh, a cardiothoracic surgeon who has had experience with this. Um, it is not something that um, you know any cardiothoracic surgeon should should be kind of doing on their own. Um, unless they've had some experience with it. At least that would be my recommendation. I think they're all very capable and they would be able to do it, but try to find someone who's had a lot of experience with it would probably allow for the best outcome for the patient. For sure. Um, so, you know, that's an excellent case with that girl. What is that the general story that the patients have followed or how has it been in the last few so, years? I think the general story is is this. I, you know, th this is probably one of my only patients that went all the way through through the surgical route of it. I think you know, looking at topical treatments with over the counter products, prescription products is the first line. Um, some patients will go on to some of the systemic oral medications. That's something that that's available. Uh, Botox injections work very, very well for a lot of our patients. Uh, that's available. There is a radio frequency device that can be used um, for the underarms that have come out over the last five, seven years. And I've, I've had um, patients tell me, uh, actually not patients, but um, physicians who do that treatment say that works very well. 
So, you know, that's the journey as, as more and more people become aware of hyperhidrosis, as more and more people do research into it and come up with new products, then us as providers, we're going to incorporate that. And one of the big things that have been really interesting for my patients is getting to know you guys and getting to know Carpe because we never had anything that we could apply on a daily basis for our patients. Now, you know, there are a lot of people who are finding you guys on their own without a relationship with the dermatologist. And that's great that there's a product out there. By the time they come to see me, they're at a probably at a much more moderate or severe rate. And so, you know, using Carpe by itself is probably not going to be the answer. But the way I incorporate um, Carpe is to use it as an adjunct treatment, as a, something that they can use daily on top of whatever we decide to do, whether that's aluminum fluoride or the new Cubrexa or iontophoresis or oral medic systemic medications. So um, it's a matter of just finding the right combination for the patient, but having more um, products that are out there that can address it is just going to allow for our patients to have a better end result. So that's really interesting. Uh, have you found that different sort of treatments work better and worse for different patients? That's true for anything. I mean, you know, if you look, you know, let's just look at acne. You know, when you look at acne, there's so many different medications that are out there for acne. Um, and part of that reason is everyone responds differently. And I think hyperhidrosis responds very differently. I've had patients who we do dry salt and they've been happy and they never have irritation. Um, I have other patients who can't apply even the over-the-counter version of um, dry sol or aluminum chloride because it's too irritating for their skin. Um, so everyone's different. Um, what is going on physiologically to explain that? I don't think we have a good understanding of that. Um, so, you know, I think penetration, I think environmental factors, there's probably so many different variables that play a role in it. So... Um, but we're not at that point to understand that this variable is playing a bigger role in this individual. And thus, because this variable is really the, the go-to one, then X treatment is better than Y treatment. Yeah. So in your practice, how has the conversation around sweat come up? So most patients um, that we see are going to be coming in specifically for sweating. Um, you know, it's not something that we really screen for because we're so busy. We're seeing patients for a whole bunch of other problems, and there's only so much time that we can spend with, with patients. But patients do know that dermatologists are the experts when it comes to all things related skin, and that includes the sweat gland and hyperhidrosis. Now, we may have some patients who may say, oh, by the way, I also have some sweating. But once again, they're still bringing that up. Um, you know, I can't remember on our website whether sweat disorders are, are written on it or um, written on our website to say that's one of, you know, the conditions that we tend to see. Um, but it's usually brought up by the patient. So how, how often would you say somebody comes in with this as a primary concern? How many patients are you seeing with this as a secondary concern? Like ballpark figures every month, every year? Um, I mean, we see several patients every month. Um, you know, I think it varies throughout the seasons. I think in the spring, in the summer, when it's a little bit more warm, um, you tend to see them talk about it a little bit more than we would in the fall and the, and, and the winter months. Does that, does that change much? Or actually, uh, I was going to ask if that varies much by body part, but my bigger question there is what body parts bother people the most in your experience? What are people talking about? So axilla is definitely the, the underarm areas are 
is the most common areas. Um, and then, you know, we sprinkle um, patients with palmar um, and plantar, the, the hands and feet, the hands by far more so than the feet. And then um, we just, you know, a handful that just say generalized sweating or on the face or on the scalp. Um, men more so for the scalp. I don't think I've had many women ask me about scalp sweating. Um, but those are, the, those are the main areas. But really the axilla, probably good 70, 80, 90% is axilla. And at what point in people's lives do they do they come to you with this? Is it is it you know shortly after developing? Is it something they've been putting up with for a while? And and how old are these folks usually? You know, I've seen people, um, you know, eighteen, nineteen year olds, like the college student that I described earlier, and then I have people in their forties and fifties. Um, you know, I don't really see people who are elderly um, in their seventies and eighties. Um, I don't really see young children with it, um, but it's probably in that. 20 to 40, 20 to 50 age range. And, and are they saying that it's something they've had to deal with for a while or is it usually a, a recently emerged problem? It's usually something that they have been dealing with for a while, but then it's gotten to a point where it starts becoming a factor in their job, um, presentations or things of that sort. I, would, I don't know if I would say that they'd say, yes, it's gotten worse. I think it's just all of a sudden they become more aware of it and say, I should do something about it. That makes sense. Uh, final kind of statistics question before I hand it back to David. What portion of patients would you say end up uh, with a diagnosis of primary hyperhidrosis versus what fraction do you find a secondary condition to be causing the sweating? So for me as a dermatologist, um, you know, I don't, well, well let, me, let me go back. Um, if there is a case of secondary hyperhidrosis, that individual is going to be having a lot of other symptoms based on what the underlying issue is. Um, in, in my practice over the last 14, 15 years, I haven't seen a single case of secondary hyperhidrosis because I think those individuals have been self-selected by understanding that there were other symptoms going on and taking care of those symptoms. And you know whether it's an endocrine issue or whatever it may be, and that physician saying, oh yeah, you have this. And by the way, you may also have excess sweating. But as a dermatologist, I haven't had someone come in, have had hyperhidrosis, and then me saying, oh, I think you're, because of these other symptoms that you're having, I think you really have secondary hyperhidrosis. So for me, it's been almost 100% um, primary. That is really interesting to know. I, I, I did not know that. Yeah, so, I think yeah. I, I think those are being self-selected by their primary care physicians because of whatever underlying issues going on. There's going to be a whole bunch of different organ systems that are going to be affected, and those organ systems. Remember, at the end of the day, skin tends to be something that um, isn't going to be as um, concerning to someone. But if they had diarrhea or nausea or rapid heart rates or whatever, whether it's a GI symptom, a endocrine system, a cardiac symptoms, that's going to go to the top of the list for a lot of patients. So they're going to be seeing their primary care physicians for that. And I think that's where that secondary hyperhidrosis most likely is being, um, being um, diagnosed. It makes sense. Great. Um, so Dr. Patel, you know, how does the, the conversation or what would you say to, to someone that sweats a lot um, and they're annoyed by it. They've never heard of hyperhidrosis. They've never heard of any of the kind of really over-the-counter or prescription solutions available. And they're just looking 
for that next step? Like what, what is that first step in the journey that someone should take um, in dealing with their sweat? What, what is something that kind of a, one piece of advice you'd give them? The first piece of advice that I give them is that it's treatable, right? And so I think a lot of patients don't realize that this is a treatable condition. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we're going to hit it out of the park 100% of the right. time, but there are a lot of different options that are out there. So that's number one. Number two is making sure you get really good information. Um, and whether that's from your physician, and I would recommend a board certified dermatologist because we are the ones that um, sweat glands sort of falls under. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet and you just got to be very careful with what's on the internet because there's a lot of misinformation on the internet as well. And so, you know, using um, the American Academy of Dermatology website to um, go through it, you know, going through the Hyperhidrosis Foundation or the network that's out there, they have good information. Um, you guys are doing a tremendous job of providing really good information. Um, you know, partly due to the fact that you guys have a group of dermatologists that you rely upon and, and you, you know, you use people like myself and the others to make sure that the information that you guys provide are accurate. And so, you know, I commend you guys for, for doing that, but you guys are a really good source as well. Um, so that's the first bit of advice is just make sure that it, that the patients know it's treatable. Um, get good information, and then establish a relationship with a dermatologist. Um, and some dermatologists are going to have a lot more experience with it. Others may not have as much experience with it. And so, you know, talking to others that may be suffering through that and seeing what dermatologist they're using, word of mouth is always one of the best ways of trying to find out who are some of the people that in their network um, have used that um, tend, that they've had a good good result with. And so once that relationship has been established with the dermatologist, then that's where the history of present illness, the past medical history, and going through and kind of peeling back the layers of the onion there and trying to figure out what has the patient done, what has the patient not done? Is this potentially a case of primary versus secondary hyperhidrosis? And then starting, starting treatment based on what the patient has tried in the past, um, you know, to what degree they're having sweating. Um, and, you know, sometimes affordability has to come into play because you have to look for cost-effective treatments as well because some of these treatments can be expensive. Hyperhidrosis for Botox, if it's not covered by the patient's insurance, can be quite pricey. Is that something that they're willing to pay or not pay? Um, and so you know, those are, those are all the factors to kind of come into play, but establishing a great relationship with the dermatologist and looking at good information that's out there by trusted sources. Awesome. Really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners do as well. With that, Casper, do you have any other questions? No, I, uh, you know, I feel like I got all my questions out in that rapid fire, uh, halfway through this, but, um, this has been really, really interesting information. Any, any final thoughts you wanted to add about sweating? I think the, the thing with sweating that all patients should know is that there's not a cure for it, that there is, it's going to be a chronic issue, regardless of what treatment you go to. Now, some have much more longer term effects versus others. And to not get frustrated through that and to understand that 
your dermatologist will spend time and kind of work through all those options that are out there. But if you're looking for a fix where you can say, I want to take this pill for 10 days and it's gone. Unfortunately, that's not reality when it comes to hyperhidrosis. It's a chronic condition. And when you, when I talk about chronic conditions, I tell my patients, you have to look at hyperhidrosis the same way you would look at diabetes or high blood pressure. Um, it's something you will always have. Is it treatable? Yes. Um, is it curable? No but we can definitely treat it. I think that's, you know, encouraging words for anybody for whom this is a, a really daily painful part of their lives. So uh, Dr. Patel, really, really appreciate you joining us. Um, and to your point about, you know, the information we provide, thank you so much for being a part of that and helping us, you know, deliver accurate information to, to sweaty folks like us. Well, thank you for allowing me to have this journey with you guys um, as you guys continue to uh, take Carpe to the next level and just providing such a wonderful service to those individuals suffering from hyperhidrosis. Awesome. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And uh, listeners, thank you guys for joining us again this week. Uh, we'll see you next week when, once again, we will talk about sweat. Let's talk about sweat. Take care. Take care.